quarter of an hour ago as we were worshipping, I was really reminded of the experience that Jacob had at Bethel. Up and down, this is a place where earth connects with heaven. And I feel the Lord saying that of the house of the open door. This is a place where heaven has reached down to earth. We think in up and down terms, we find it very difficult not to do that really in the Bible. Does they come up higher? But heaven is just a parallel universe, isn't it? It's just a different dimension. And this place, House of the Open Door, God has been as a Bethel to many people here through the years. And I praise you, Lord, for everyone who has been touched and used of you in this place. Follow them up tonight, Father, wherever they are, and go with them and give them new strength, carrying the new fire we sang about just now. And if need be, laying down old flames, things that may have been just right for last year, but perhaps you're saying, I'm doing it differently now. And you've reached a different season in your life. Play catch up. Catch up with what I'm doing. Trust it. I'm leading you. And I'm leading you to embrace more and more the awareness of my heavenly presence. Don't think that you can become too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. Hallelujah. Satan has very specific propaganda tactics to use against you to try to limit and cramp your freedom. But I am setting you free to know that my glory surrounds you, sustains you, and energizes you and empowers you to do what I've called you to do. And in that song that we were singing it to, very clearly John said that every one of us has a unique sound, a unique voice, and he was hearing woodwind sounds of instruments that we were singing a cappello, and I heard the same thing. I heard woodwind instruments. Thank you, Lord. And that's no disrespect to the trumpets or the big bass drums or the violins or anything else, because every instrument has a particular sound that it makes that orchestrates together in God's symphony and all things in heaven and on earth are conspiring together towards the glorious end that's hinted at in Ephesians 1.10 when all things come together under one head, even Jesus Christ, so that history is not as many pessimistically in the world think, spinning out of control one set of rulers and politicians and voters and voted after another going nowhere but heading towards the moment of Christ's return. Mm -hmm. And we think so easily of that as being like the moment the author comes on the stage as it were to take a bow and the curtain to close. But actually it's only closing on one era and one act. The moment of Christ's return is the moment of launching his kingdom in a new and fuller way. And I love the thought that the Lord will come with, yes, the serried ranks of holy angels, but also with his holy ones. And that phrase isn't fully unpacked in scripture. 
We know that there will be thousands there who've come through the tribulation, those who've been martyred. But will it only be with those? I don't think so. I think the Lord is lining his people up to rule and reign with him because everything God does, he does corporately and he wants to share with us. And I think that in the church generally, we've underplayed the teaching of the second coming of Christ, perhaps because we've been mentally a bit scarred by wild and woolly thinking, which has been so dogmatic about this and so full of dates about the other that didn't work out, or that were frankly just loopy, that we, as it were, held back and missed the reality of what the Lord has said, that he's actually given us pointers and themes and threads all the way through the New Testament, but also very much in the old as well, towards his coming kingdom. And he wants us to unpack those and to let them filter into us. They're not all laid out in one particular place where you can take the whole lot in one sitting. You'll find the three chapters of Daniel 10, 11 and 12 constitute one great vision. You'll see in Zechariah 12 and 14 promises and predictions which are of immense importance to the end times. You'll see glory in Isaiah. All the way from chapter 40 to the end, you'll see moments of sheer the glory of the Lord coming. And the Lord wants us to absorb these into our worldview, to be, as it were, an undergirding. And that we know that heaven is all around us. And heaven is coming to earth in a new way. That earth was never intended to be a disposable item as if it was of no importance. It's the jewel in the universe. And of course, it's contested. It may well be that Lucifer, whose name paradoxically means the light bearer, he may have been the prince of the earth at some time. He was of high rank. He was thrown out for his rebellion, his vain, deluded, rebellion that still causes him in his delusion to think that maybe he can still wrest things out of God's control. Or if he can't, that he'll take as many people down with him as he can. The battle is on for planet Earth, but God designed planet Earth to be a holy place, to be a place that will be fire-redeemed, so that even when eventually the Lord wraps up the heavens <laughs> and the earth and creates a new heaven, a new earth, the things that he has done in your life, all that you've been for him and are with him, will continue. There is enormous continuity when things are seen from the heavenly side. Do you remember when the great church historian Bede was dying? He was literally just finishing, I think it was the Gospel of John, his translation, he just done the last verse and he laid down his quill, knowing that he was dying, and said, you know, I think I'm going to get there in time for Matins. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and you know many people, maybe you've experienced it yourself, but you all know many people who have passed to be with the Father, who you have been allowed to glimpse in glory. Could you raise your hand if you've had an experience or a vision of seeing somebody you love in paradise? Yeah, I thought so. 
It's much more common than people realize. Heaven isn't far away. It's just a different dimension. And the Lord wants to reassure us. Now, of course, because this is such an inestimably precious truth, Satan wants to counterfeit it. There are endless warnings in Scripture. Well, they're not endless, but I'm not going to go through them all. Against necromancy, against palmistry, against divination, against the occult in every form, but particularly against getting in touch with the dead. Because it says, you know, don't be fooled into going after mediums and spiritists. And in Hebrew, the word spiritist just means a knowing one. There's a type of knowledge which right from the start was contested in the Garden of Eden. And we're not meant to go there because Satan, although he spouts a load of platitudes, often does have insight into future events. And he's quite prepared to palm them off on anyone foolish enough to take them on board in exchange for a foothold into their soul. So it may be he'll give a physical healing to somebody through a spiritualist meeting or something, and the person will be fooled into thinking this must be a safe source, but it isn't. It's a counterfeit source. Mm. But for every counterfeit, there is a genuine. And why would the Lord not want us to explore and to know and to be confident in the reality of heaven where he reigns in power, in light, in life and in authority with his saints and angels, with those who have loved him from every tribe and nation, every language. The other thing I was hearing as John was leading worship then was I was hearing accents, I was hearing people speaking Welsh, I was hearing all sorts of languages. Just this lovely sense that we were worshipping tonight here, but on behalf of and with a great worshipping company through the ages, the host of heaven. And when people use that phrase, they so often think of Hebrews, you know, you know, that being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. But it's almost as though people think of that purely as an observing group, maybe a cheering on group, like spectators in an auditorium. I think it's a little bit more active even than that, you know. I think that it's not a passive thing being in heaven at all. It's active. People are in a place where they can worship and where they can do things for the Lord. Do you remember that lovely verse in Revelation 22 that speaks of people serving the Lamb? Your servants will serve you. Well, that implies action. And people often have said the creed through the years in churches, week by week, you know, we believe in the Lord who is full of life. And, you, know, you know the words, but somehow it doesn't quicken their spirits or excite their hearts. And the Lord wants it to. There's a great hope to which we are called and a great hope which the enemy would try to distort. Have you noticed how his propaganda department has set out to make people not believe in the downward pull? I talked about going up, come up higher, said the Lord. But the enemy would try to kid people these days that nobody goes down that everything is bland, reassurances, life after life books everywhere, 
and the library shelves packed full of books of encounters with angels that are no encounter with angels at all because there's no call to conversion, there's no call to morality, there's just bland reassurance, blandishments. And this is a particularly fitting way to try to fit in with our anything goes generation. And it takes people away from the living, holy fear of the Lord, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Mm. It's impossible to please God without faith. And that was a very specific word that the writer of Hebrews gave, knowing full well that he meant by that faith in Jesus, not just in God generally as an airy-fairy concept. So important. And so we set our hearts on the coming King, he who was and is and is to come. And when Jesus looks and speaks about future events, it's as though he's looking through a time telescope. Star Trek people get getting bit excited about this. He's looking down through the years and seamlessly weaves together mm. passages from different times and epochs. The prophets do it all the time. Isaiah and Jeremiah had no idea half the time what they were seeing, but they were seeing things that spanned the millennia. And that's not difficult for God. Mm. You know, one of the slight advantages of being just a tad older, more experienced, sorry, is that you see threads coming together and things that you sowed decades ago beginning to work together and fruit coming from those things in utterly unexpected ways. It's just a tiny hint. And of course, Peter reminding us that with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. Time is no problem to the Lord in that sense whatsoever. The things he promised so many years ago are coming together. And you see this constantly in, for example, Matthew chapter 24, which is one of the great chapters in which Jesus speaks about future events. And one of the problems that people have often run up against is the word when Jesus seems to be talking about the moment of his second coming, and he says this generation will not pass away before well, and everybody gets very confused. And says, heaven and earth will not pass away without these words coming to without these events having taken place. How does that work? Perhaps Jesus as a human being didn't know everything. Perhaps that was what was happening. Or perhaps slightly got it wrong on the um, translation and the copying of the Gospels. And perhaps it should have been they were talking about the events of the kingdom coming to pass. Because that was definitely happening at the time. No. Matthew 24 has to be taken as a block. You remember I was saying that Daniel chapters 10 to 12 are a block vision. Same with the whole of Matthew 24. It began with the extraordinary words that the disciples are looking up at this incredible feat of engineering that was the temple. It was just awesome, the size of the stones, the shaping of them, 100 feet tall, the towers, and then two great columns in front of them. There was that awful lot to admire in that. And Jesus saying, not one of these stones will remain on top of each other. They will be cast down. And the disciples go, huh? could that really happen? So what was Jesus actually talking about? He was talking about the event in AD 70, which would seal the judgment that would come upon the nation because they'd failed to recognize the hour of his visitation. 
And so all the dilemma of what was Jesus talking about is solved if you go back to the beginning of Matthew 24 and see that actually Jesus was talking about that. He wasn't at that point talking about his second coming at all, but he immediately did go on to talk about that. I think it's verse 35, immediately after that. And you see, time has telescoped. One moment he was talking about an event, one generation later, exactly as he said he would, and the next moment he was looking right into what we know, we call the future, and which he himself said he didn't know the time of. So the one thing the son didn't know was the exact hour of his return. And one of the absolute hallmarks of a cult is they will insist on giving the date of his return and then tripping up over their own feet and finding they have to make a rather hasty readjustment. <laughs> well, it's good for us as believers when we get something wrong and our prejudices and our beliefs and our way we've been taught wasn't quite right and we have to you know, eat some humble pie and put it right. That's like when you have a bump on it, your tyre and you go to the garage and they retrack it for you and the tyres fit for purpose again. Peter had to do it, you remember, when he was absolutely convinced that God wouldn't pour out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles and, ooh, ooh Cornelius, <laughs> humble pie, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. It's too small a thing. Isaiah would prophesied it, but it was a heck of a shock to actually see it happening in real life the same Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles and thank goodness it was because we're here today and Paul having to humble himself on the Damascus Road we all know why he got it wrong his tires needed tracking retracking <coughs> urgently he needed a big bump in order for that to come about <coughs> now the actual phrase second coming is not one that you will find in the scriptures do you know what is used instead in Greek, what the word is? Perusia. Yep, absolutely. It's perusia, which is a Greek word which in Latin became adventus, from which we get advent. And it simply means a coming alongside as of a royal king or governor coming into a province not as a constitutional monarch to sort of wave from balcony, but as an absolute monarch to oversee all that was going on. This is the royal coming that we're talking about, the second coming. And it will be as unlike the first coming as two could possibly be. And I love what Bernard of Clairvaux said back in the 12th century, that Advent celebrates three things. It talks about recognizing Christ in us, in the flesh, daily. It talks about his coming to the world in the flesh. And it gives us the chance to look forward to his future coming again. You see, time telescoping again, Christ came, he comes day by day, and he will come again. I love greeting each day by the Latin words Deo gratias, thanks be to God. It's a lovely way to start the day. You're, you're sounding it out to the Lord. Lord, I'm giving myself to you at the very beginning. And I wanted something to match that in the evening. And of course, I've come to the Latin words on that. You know, into us manus, commendo, a spiritual meum. Into your hands, Lord, I give my spirit this night. It's a great way to prepare for the night. So we meet with him by day, we meet with him by night. And who knows, those who stand by night and worship by night 
maybe that's a particularly pleasing offering to the Lord. So instead of just worrying when you wake up in the middle of the night about the things you haven't done, the things you've got to do, it's the time just to say, into us manos, commend us, spiritual meum, into your hands, Lord. I commit, I commend my spirit, my doings, my deeds, my all. I love that worship song afterwards, which is really saying the same thing. We just commit everything to you, Lord. The perusia of Christ, as Romans 13, 11 says, for sure, is a lot nearer than when we first believed. The exact moment we don't know. But it will only come after mankind has tried everything to get by without him. Mm. And that's why the coming of Antichrist is bound to happen. Because somebody will, in Lucifer's constant desire, try to usurp the throne of God and exercise his power, his moment in the limelight. It is inevitable. And as John said in his epistles, into the world have gone many antichrists. And if we'd been alive on the south coast of Britain, worrying about Napoleon invading, I'm quite sure we would have looked on him as being the antichrist with perfect justification. He was trying to rule the universe, rule Europe anyway. He was trying to do everything and he was acting as an antichrist. There had been many, but there will be one. And that is made absolutely clear. What will be one particular target that he goes for? I'm quite sure, the land of Israel. Quite clear from scripture that the events of the end times revolve around the land of Israel. It's funny, isn't it, in Scripture that the first time we meet Israel, he was a person mm. and a place rather than just a land. But we do it the other way around. That when secular people today think about Israel, they think about the land, first of all. Only thirdly do they think about the person that's behind it all. And the Lord's saying so clearly, I have, this is my land, and I have set Jerusalem in the midst of the nations. It's a quote from Ezekiel, it's a beautiful one. I've set Jerusalem in the midst of the nations. And no other topic probably gets people so het up. Because Jesus himself didn't make a great thing in any sense nationalistically about the land of Israel. Far from it. He was far more concerned, you know, as we see from the woman at the well of Samaria, that people worship in spirit rather than about place. But he also knew that God the Father had ordained that he should be born in a particular place in Bethlehem and that he would come back to another place with his feet touching on the Mount of Olives just a few miles from Bethlehem. It had to be in a geographical place. And the covenant that the Lord had made with Israel all those years ago, yes, it had been superseded by the new covenant that was made by the blood of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. But it didn't mean that the core promises and prophecies of Scripture were all, as it were, completely superseded or made obsolescent. The trappings of the sacrificial system of sacrifices was rendered obsolescent, as the book of Hebrews explains with beautiful clarity. But the core promises and prophecies that we find in Isaiah concerning the end times, they're not wiped out. They're not to be discarded. 
The warnings we find in Zechariah at the end, the chapters I referred to, chapters 12 and 14, they're still valid for things that are to come. And therefore it's very important, as I've often said when I've been here, that we perk up our ears when we hear God speaking in the first person, revealing more of his heart and revealing more of the things that are to come. And prophecy works both in the past tense, looking back to things that have happened, it works again on the continuous level, and it works in the future elements. So it's just as Bernard of Clairvaux was saying about Advent. It, Christ comes in the flesh to us every day. He came at a certain time, and he will come again. And we have to be able to span that, as it were, to expand our worldview, to be able to think on those many different levels together. And I wonder if you've got particular thoughts, insights or questions about the end times that you would like to ask, because I've got a heap of material that I would love to share with you, but I thought it might perhaps be helpful if we could draw out anything that's been troubling you about it or that you would like to share and then we've got Tom here to answer the questions. <laughs> so it would be great if you'd like to share anything that's on your heart.